0: Welcome to Around the Block at Haas, a Here at Haas podcast focused on all things blockchain around all of Berkeley. We're chatting with Haasies, professors, blockchain entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your executive producer and co-host, Paul Brzezik. I'm your co-host, Ameya Burandare, And we're super excited to take you along the crypto journey around the Berkeley campus and introduce you to innovative people in the Web3 space. Well, hi, everybody. I'm super excited to introduce Nate Pola, who is currently earning a degree in economics at UC Berkeley, while also studying electrical engineering, computer science. He's really involved within the blockchain space and is interested in the intersection of economics with an emphasis on DeFi and dApps. Nate Pola is currently the head of programming going into his senior year and just recently elected as co-head of education for blockchain at Berkeley. So happy to- to introduce nate thanks for having me paul yeah thanks so much first thing interested to hear about your journey to cal and what brought you to berkeley and how did you initially get involved with the blockchain at berkeley
1: Absolutely. So I'm a Bay Area native. So I've spent my whole life in San Francisco. And ever since then, I've always been somewhat involved with Cal. My mom went to Berkeley and growing up, she'd bring us to game days or different events on Berkeley's campus. And I felt connected with the school, even from a young age. And so that's why I was thrilled when I was accepted at Cal back in 2019. And it was obvious choice for me. I knew it's exactly where I wanted to be, even if it is pretty close to home. And so from there, freshman year, I was still exploring, trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to get involved with. I'd heard a bit here and there about Bitcoin, different cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and it definitely piqued my interest. And from there that I found out about blockchain at Berkeley, the student club, and looked into some of the incredible things that the club has been doing in the space and applied and then joined my sophomore year. I found that a lot of what I've enjoyed studying and doing academically has revolved around blockchain as well. And so I, like you said, I'm an economics major, and I'm also doing a fair amount in the engineering, the electrical engineering, computer science department. And I find that those two fields create a great intersection that is blockchain. And so those two are very informing and they help me to explore those fields.
0: When I first was joining blockchain at Berkeley, I was taking the blockchain fundamentals class and you were actually teaching several of those courses. So I know that you've been involved in the education side of blockchain at Berkeley for a long time. And you have some plans for where you want to take education based off of your platform, which recently got you in as a official co-head of education, which is awesome. I'm interested in how you initially got involved on the education side and what are the futures? steps?
1: I've always loved teaching. I think my first teaching experience was when I was nine or 10 years old, like teaching English in a small class of a bunch of other kids my age. And so it was a kind of symbiotic relationship there. It was me trying to learn Spanish from them and then then like me teaching them English as well. And so ever since, I've really loved teaching education. Like I had classes in high school and at least at Berkeley, I've been involved with, I believe, five or so classes. So I was one of the co-teachers for the Blockchain Fundamentals course, which is a Berkeley course, the one that you just referenced that we've actually been able to Expand in my time. We started off with around 25, 30 students, and then that number is out over 230 students, I believe. So we've had a lot of growth in this past year, and we've definitely filled up those lecture halls with a bunch of eager blockchain students. And then they also taught like another class through the Health through HMAP, which is the Health and Medical Apprenticeship Program. And so that was a like public health course. And then I was a undergraduate graduate student instructor, so a UGSI, for last semester for a decentralized finance course. And so this was a brand new course that was released last semester and is going to be offered again in the fall. So if there are any Berkeley students out there or anyone who's interested in learning some of the content from that, the course is available online and it's also available for any Berkeley students to take in person.
0: Awesome. And I understand that there's some plans to expand within the edX realm for the online platform for providing additional blockchain courses.
1: Blockchain at Berkeley offers a few blockchain courses on the online edX platform. These are open to anyone in the world to take, either for a verified certificate or just to audit the class. Right now we're in our fifth batch of the course. And we have total around 55,000 students worldwide enrolled in the course. In the future, we're hoping to expand and revamp this course and then continue to make updates so that we can offer the most recent and the most applicable content as possible for anyone who wants to take it. And so right now we're working on re-recording and re-releasing new content. So right now we're in the content development stage for that
0: course. So that's awesome. So there's going to be new courses that are coming out from the edX platform as that continues to expand. I'm also curious if that role compares with the director of programming at Berkeley Blockchain Accelerator, pretty well known as it's raised over $400 million from carry-on funding, additional rounds from startups and founders that have graduated from the accelerator. You can give an introduction to the accelerator.
1: Absolutely. So the Berkeley Blockchain Accelerator is a non-dilutive accelerator in connection with Blockchain at Berkeley. And so what this means is that rather than taking equity from these companies, we receive funding and use that to help teams branch into the blockchain ecosystem and gain the traction that they're looking for. The structure of the Accelerator is set up in a way where university students work with teams and direct connections between the teams and the accelerator itself. By pairing up these teams with students, we create a dynamic relationships to help support the teams however possible. As the director of programming, I help establish a lot of these connections. I create events and connect teams with mentors, to attract investors to connecting these teams with different credits and funding and perks. I have to manage all the AWS credits in conjunction with the accelerator and offer anything that can help these... Teams succeed in whatever way that looks like for them. We take teams from a bunch of different levels. We have some like seed round earlier stage startups, or even ones that have come out of student courses. So a lot of times Berkeley offers challenge labs or different classes that build phenomenal products. And then these products or these teams apply to the accelerator. And then from there, they can continue to develop their blockchain startup post MVP stage. There isn't necessarily a blanket statement, but I try to help teams however works for them.
0: And I know that this last round was the most competitive into the accelerator to date. I believe there are 300 applicants for only 15 spots. So we can give an overview of some of the teams that have made it into the accelerator. What are some criteria that overall are red flags that the accelerator looks for to not accept as that incoming batch?
1: Sure. When we take a look at teams, we, for starters, make sure that the team is using blockchain in an effective way.
0: When we're looking at teams that
1: have a tangible blockchain use case, that's why it's slightly different from other VCs or maybe other accelerators Is the underlying foundation. Because from there, we can connect these teams with the blockchain ecosystem that Berkeley has. Berkeley is one of the largest university networks and ecosystems for blockchain. And so that is a key component that a lot of times is overlooked. But when teams do have blockchain at the forefront of their use case, more so than just tech, on like web three or some or blockchain or whatever keywords it may be like NFTs just to fit some criteria and then from there we look at taking on teams from a variety of different sectors so whether it may be companies that have more of a finance or fintech approach or even ones that have environmental approaches or have environmental goals in mind whatever it may be we have a variety of different aspects of blockchain that we try to use so that we can accept and have the most diverse group of teams as possible so that comes from even having some student teams ones that might be working in a few marketplaces, ones that are in gaming and web through games, whatever it may be, the goal is to have, like I said, a very diverse group of teams.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. I would be remiss here to not probe you on some of the Bitcoin fundamentals since, you know, I, I took a couple of courses with you teaching them. So at least wanted to get your thoughts and kind of explanation on the underlying mechanics of a block and how you would describe at kind of a low level how the blockchain works when particularly with Bitcoin as using that as the template and even diving into the hashing algorithms and understanding really how many different types of hashing occur under the hood. For sure.
1: So the way I like to think about Bitcoin, at least, is that the strength of it comes from numbers. The reality is that in Bitcoin or any kind of crypto decentralized system, there is no one central sense of truth. And so because there's no entity who's overseeing everything, no third party, like you would have a bank in traditional finance or some outside auditing service, whatever it may be, you don't have that in a decentralized setup. And because of that, you use as many data points as possible to create consensus and agreement and to establish some kind of sense of truth based off of economic incentives and profit. And so diving into that a little bit, the way this happens is by including as many data points as we can, which takes the form of having as many different users join a blockchain network or join and being participants in it. And so what we see here is that the more users we have, we have a more widespread sense of truth. At the end, there's more of a universal truth that we can use to create and make informed decisions about future improvements of protocols or even to establish transactions that seem right versus ones that might seem suspicious. And so that's the overview of the network infrastructure of Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. So with respect to the hashing, every new block within the blockchain has the hash to the previous blocks header. What actually the mechanism of creating the public private keys and the underlying hashing algorithms?
1: So now to get into some more of the technical structure of how Bitcoin works. So a block is a bundle of information and it has a few Different components to it, but essentially it contains a list or some kind of ledger of transactions, and it has a few other components that give it a set structure within the blockchain. All the blocks or bundles of information are all linked with one another due to this chain structure. So, now just to dive into exactly what a blockchain is. So, blocks can be thought of as bundles of information. And so, like we see in cryptocurrencies, a lot of the time these contain transactions between one address or one entity to another address or entity. And so, these bundles of information essentially work as the equivalent of me handing you a dollar bill. Right there, that is one transaction that was agreed upon. I know that I give you $1, now you have $1, I have one less dollar, and this transaction is agreed upon, and it was fully executed by us. Bitcoin, we don't have third parties because a lot of the motivation for creating Bitcoin was to remove the role of banks and create a fully community-based network that can have the same role as banks. And so once we get into a mission statement, we can use it to inform a lot of the incentives, and we can dive into how we need to continue to make changes to a for the system to run smoothly. And so that's why we see that profit is the main motivator of everyone who's involved in Bitcoin. It is what encourages people to uphold the network and act honestly. Because without profit incentives, it's easy for different users to get tempted to act maliciously and try to tamper with the network or find ways to exploit it for their own financial gain. And so now to get into some of the structure, as we see blocks are bundles of information and the unique structure about blockchains is that they're linked together. And this is done through having a component in the block header, which is essentially like a kind of specifications of the block, block size. There's a component called hash, which is a hashing algorithm. It's a unique identifier of the code. I mean, you could think about it like a serial number or QR code of sorts. And then you have a pointer, which essentially is a reference to another block. And so by using references that are outside of each block, we have one block referencing another block, referencing another block continuously. And this creates like a chain structure or a linked structure. And the reason why this is so effective is that if for some reason someone tries to go in and tamper with the structure of one of the individual blocks, that will change and propagate its way down the chain so that not just that one block is tampered, but because they're all linked one by one, they're all intrinsically connected and it affects every other component. And so we can easily identify these changes due to the structure of a blockchain and through the structure of a Merkle tree. And so to explain a Merkle tree, it is a way that data is structured. In more and more of a computer science background, it's just like a normal tree structure. A Merkle tree is structured in a way where it's like a bunch of smaller subunits of information, where each individual piece of information is paired up with another. And what this does is it essentially takes a large store of information and splits it into much smaller groups.
0: So how is the Merkle root represented within each block? I think in Bitcoin, there's over 500 transactions per block. So are all of the transaction data stored within that block header?
1: So as we see, we have large bundles of information within blocks that contain however many transactions. I mean, at times we're seeing solutions that can increase the number of transactions, but let's just say around 500 transactions. And what within these transactions, like that's a lot of information to store. And so part of the beauty of blockchain is that it uses something called a Merkle tree, which is a way of structuring data and splitting this large bundle of transactions into much smaller components. And so it does this by essentially splitting them in half again and again and again. So we take the let's say the principal size of 500 transactions or listed transactions, splits them into two smaller subgroups of 250. From there, splits more and more, 25 and so on and so forth until it gets down to the individual transactions, until it gets to the point where every transaction is split into its own bundle or its its own subgroup. And from there, these subgroups or these individual transactions are paired with another one. And so they are intrinsically connected in a structure that uses these pairs to detect any changes. By pairing up these transactions, we can see that if someone tries to go in and tamper one of the individual units or transactions to, let's say, redirect funds from one address to another, so essentially Like taking the funds from one directed address to another. Because these transactions are linked, then we can note these changes. And these changes then work their way up. Everything is linked to one another so that any change works its way up into the larger and larger subgroups until it it is apparent that there was some kind of tampering that took place. Because as we see with so many transactions, a big concern is scalability, being able to expand this to increase transactions and just the raw size of the data storage involved to keep all these transactions. And so doing so minimizes the amount of storage or space that's needed and using this Merkle tree structure and taking only the smallest units and using the reference to other units of data allows for all these changes and everything to be tracked on the blockchain and for a blockchain to not consume too much storage space.
0: Okay, awesome. Thanks for the explanation, getting into the kind of the details of the block itself. And just to wrap up there, I'd also be interested to hear your explanation on how UTXO model works, which is the unspent transaction output within Bitcoin. And of course, Bitcoin is really just the first application that we've seen a blockchain, which is just intended to be a ledger of all of the transactions. But I think the UTXO model is lesser known.
1: So the UTXO model uses something called addresses, what you could think of as some specified location where funds can be transferred to and from. And so addresses are the equivalent of a bank account routing number or... Or some kind of identifier, it's essentially your personality and your form of identification when you interact with blockchain or Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. And so, a lot of the times when the users interact with Bitcoin, they don't want to transfer one full Bitcoin. They want to transfer smaller denominations of this. And so, the way this works is by using division structure. So, let's say that one address, address A, wants to transfer funds to the address B, but address A has one full Bitcoin and wants to transfer half of Bitcoin. So, the way they can do this is by using a two pronged approach. The first part of the process is by dividing this one Bitcoin into three smaller subgroups. The first group is the half a Bitcoin, which would go to user B. We can think about it like essentially creating smaller piggy banks or smaller bank accounts that contain these funds. And so it transfers that half of Bitcoin to the intended recipient. And so these transaction fees are a lot of times much smaller and they're very minor, but they still do exist. And so the second smallest piggy bank is the transaction fee that is sent to the miner or whichever party is facilitating this transaction. And then the third little piggy bank is whatever's remaining, and that gets sent back to the original user address. So rather than just holding on to these funds, it sends out these three units, like these three vehicles of Bitcoin to the intended recipient, to the miner or facilitator, and then back to the initial address. And so that's how the UTXO model sends and transfers funds. And it's a little different from just traditionally splitting up cash and then sending it off, but it is very functional for Bitcoin.
0: Great explanation. And I wanted to switch the topic a bit to the more current events of stable coins, with Terra Luna recently collapsing and even throwing tether off its $1 peg, which has caused quite some ripples through the crypto community and further exasperating this bear market. So, how you would define a stable coin? And as you know, there are different types of stable coins. Terra Luna was is described as an algorithmic stablecoin. So how does that work? And there are two coins at play that helps to keep one of them stable?
1: So stable coins, to tie it into a traditional finance example, it's the idea of creating a peg to a currency. What stable coins serve to do, and there are a few different types which I'll get into, but stable coins work to preserve a value and create stability in a cryptocurrency. So there are a few different types of stablecoins. Just like we would see a peg to a currency in traditional finance, such as a company pegging their fiat currency to the dollar or the euro, whatever it may be, we see fiat-based stablecoins. And so this means that we can either see ones that are collateralized, meaning they they are backed by some kind of fiat currency. And so these are called fiat collateralized stablecoins. We also have crypto collateralized stablecoins, which are backed by crypto or tokens. And then we have algorithms, which is the trickiest of the three. Algorithmic ones are the ones that don't have a direct one-to-one backing, and they instead are backed by computer science. So essentially, algorithmic stablecoins may or may not really hold reserved assets, but what they do is they try to keep their value of the stablecoin as stable as possible by controlling the supply of them. And this is done through a minting and burning process, the creation and destruction of a token in relation to the price of another one. You can think about it as being similar to central banks because the Fed, for example, can control the money supply of the United States dollar. And they do this by either printing more money or whether it be through repos or reverse repos or other mechanisms that work to control inflation and control the value and price of the dollar. Sound good? Yeah,
0: as... Terra Luna was an algorithmic stablecoin. So are those actually the least secure out of the fiat and commodity and crypto-backed stablecoins?
1: So UST is a algorithmic stablecoin, and it is one of the most popular ones. And before, it was the third largest stablecoin overall by market cap. So definitely, there's a lot of trust in it. People believe in its ability to maintain its peg. At any given time, even before the crash, we saw that the price would never really fluctuate above or below a hundredth of a cent, away from $1. So it was really effective in maintaining this peg and maintaining the $1 value for quite some time. And because of this, it gained a reputation as a solid investment, as something that could be trustworthy, and that it would be an effective vehicle for maintaining value. So we saw on May 7th that the price of UST dropped below $1 to about 99 cents. And then by May 11th, 2021, so just with a few days later, it hit a low of 29 cents. This was quite concerning because for anyone that has money invested in the stablecoin, they believe that it will maintain its peg to $1. So right after the moment that UST lost its peg, UST instantly lost credibility because the credibility comes from being able to maintain and hold the peg. In contrast to Bitcoin, which is just one single standing cryptocurrency, we have these two interconnected cryptocurrencies called Luna and Terra. As we know, Terra, UST, is the stablecoin with the main goal to maintain its value as close to $1 as possible. On the other side of that, Terra is able to do so through this token called Luna, which is a reactive token that is able to be manipulated to adjust supply of Terra to keep it at that desired value. So the way this works is that for users who want to buy Terra, they must first buy Luna, and then Luna is minted or created, and then they can use it to exchange this Luna with Terra. That being said, if people want to cash out of UST, they will exchange their current UST their Terra with Luna, and then they will trade this Luna with something else, and then their Luna is burnt. The computer algorithm will work to maintain this level based off of adjusting supply and demand of each token. If the price of Terra is above the $1 peg, then Luna will then adjust its value to make it more desirable for users to buy Luna. And from there, because we see less desirability of Terra, then the value will then drop back down to $1. And then this also works in reverse. To get into a little bit about what happened specifically, we saw on May 7th that the value of Terra dropped below $1. And then four days later on May 11th, it hit a low of $0.29. Cents. This is the furthest that the value of Terra has ever deviated from its peg. What we saw from here is that UST lost credibility. So people were less confident in Terra's ability to maintain their peg. This led to a chain reaction. And what this did initially is it crashed the price of Terra and of Luna because everyone is selling all their holdings of Luna and Terra. And so we saw a large like cash out and it essentially led to what we can think of as a bank run. Terra had a large reserve of Bitcoin in store. And so Terraform Labs sold about $3 billion in Bitcoin just to buy Terra and then save the stablecoin from collapse. All this was done with the intention to pump it back into the Terra Luna ecosystem and provide more reserves and more liquidity and value in the protocol. What we saw there, though, is that after these 3 billion were sold, the Bitcoin price started to fall. What we've seen so far is that when Bitcoin falls, the price of everything tends to fall too. And there are a few reasons for this. I'd say one is that there are a large amount of Bitcoin synthetics in DeFi. And so there are a lot of different synthetics or tools, like different assets in decentralized finance that are contingent upon Bitcoin. So that is one reason why changes to Bitcoin do tend to affect the whole ecosystem. But also, we can think of the psychology and the fact that. Bitcoin is the biggest cryptocurrency, and that those who see the price of Bitcoin fall start to lose confidence in cryptocurrency as a whole. So this led to a cyclical movement that really negatively affected Terra and Luna. This created an overall broader bear market in crypto. That just naturally caused Luna to drop in value. We now have a situation where we continuously have a higher supply of Luna, but lower demand for it, because we keep getting Luna minted and less Terra. At a certain point, this results in the Luna price going from like $48 to less than like a tenth of a cent. Values in cryptocurrencies are built on perception and reputation and demand. These are the components that influence the value as they are largely speculative assets. So that's just a little bit about what happened with the Luna Terra crash.
0: Yeah. And even for crypto standards, having something with a market cap of approximately 40 billion to essentially vanish overnight is sending shockwaves. That's a huge crash. And it also caused additional instability uh, amongst other stable coins. So we also saw Tether briefly got dethroned off the $1 peg as well, but didn't experience anything nearly as dramatic as the Terra Luna crash. But even with Tether, it dropped down to, I believe, like 95 uh, cents instead of the $1 peg. Whereas USDC, which is the one Coinbase is involved to help with the stability of that coin. But that coin has remained steady at $1. So those are some interesting things to note. And, and it also just brings to mind of the DAI stablecoin, which is another algorithmic one through the MakerDAO.
1: Right. So like you talked about with USDC, the reason why it maintained its stability is that it uses a 100% collateralization approach. And so it essentially means that for every single USDC, which stands for the USD coin, token that is created, it is locked up with $1 held in collateral. Because every single token equates to $1 worth of assets, it is much more stable because there is a tangible value rather than an algorithm that is manipulating prices of two different tokens and creating and destroying it to try to maintain a peg. Because there is a direct peg, that is why it's maintained its value. And then to get it to die a little bit to die using the target rate feedback mechanism. Which sets up a situation where one US dollar is equal to one ERC20 DAI token. So each token is again similarly connected to one dollar or one worth of assets. That's why these have had more stability and have not been as affected by the ripples that have come from the Terra crash.
0: Awesome. It was we start to wrap up our time today. Just wanted to see if you had any summer plans. I know that you stay active, bilingual, maybe even trilingual at this point, but recently came back from Barcelona. And I know that there's some cool Cal activities that you like to be part of?
1: Yes, I'm really excited. I'll be working for the Cal Alumni Association this summer at a Cal summer camp. So it's called the Lair of the Bear. And it's very near and dear to my heart as well. I've grown up going every year of my life. And so it is a Cal family camp for Cal families, like grads, professors, alums, anyone who's involved in the school at all to come up to the woods up halfway between Tahoe and Yosemite in, in Pine Coast, California, and spend some time outdoors, participating in most of the classic camp activities, like singing songs, making s'mores, swimming at the lake, going on hikes, all that good stuff. So we'll be a little different from the kind of internet sensations or the digital involvement that I have with blockchain, but it'll be a nice change of scenery for
0: sure. Awesome. And do you have any predictions for where blockchain is headed over the next couple of years? Trends that you're particularly paying attention to, especially they say within the crypto winter, that's the time for good building to occur and less hype, things that you're looking forward to in the space?
1: Right. So I've always been interested in blockchain more as a system and a way to structure future internet endeavors more so than its value coming from cryptocurrency. And so What we see is a lot of times cryptocurrency is what draws people into the space. Whether it is the high yield or high returns, or the ability to get rich quick, which is what we saw in the past, and I'm not entirely sure if this will be the case moving forward, because as we have less and less investors that come in and contribute funds for tokens, then we won't have these tokens that will skyrocket in value in quite the same way. We even see this in blockchain startups as well, too. So there are companies that are able to propose some kind of a pump and dump token scheme or gain a lot of revenue based off of future work. And what I mean from that is they're able to have a startup. And and pitch a white paper and just propose futures for ways to make money in the system without actually doing any tangible work or even having that solid of a model to work with. For anyone that's interested in investing or looking into blockchain startups moving forward, look at revenue models in the traditional sense. Think about this parallel here to the summer of 2000, where companies were able to add com to their company name and then gain so much more funding. This was the case a few years ago with blockchain startups and so I would say be hesitant with these kinds of things. Go back to the roots and track who is the intended audience, who would pay for a product, how much would they pay? Just look at everything that traditional investors look for and try not to get caught up in get rich quick schemes that may not be backed by anything in the future. So really look at the foundation of these companies to make informed decisions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for coming on. And particularly, you have already so many responsibilities with the head of programming and also co-head of education. I know you're going to be wrapping up one more year. So I'm looking forward to the updates, especially in the edX component. It's awesome work you guys are doing. Great. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate it. Take care. And welcome back anytime. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Around the Block at Haas. If you enjoyed this episode and know someone who should be our next guest, please email us at haas.com podcasts with an s at berkeley.edu until next time this is paul this is a mayor and we'll see you around the
1: block